Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we'll be reading Mark 1, 9 through 13. That's on page 488 in the blue Bibles in the pocket in front of you. If you don't have a Bible in Needwood, please feel free to take one. They're our gift to you. That's Mark 1, 9 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we confess our almost crippling limitations to understand both the glory of your Son and the glory of your gospel. And so, Lord, we pray that today you would remove all the barriers and and tear down the obstacles that keep us from understanding the beauty, the majesty of this story, Lord. We pray that, especially for those of us that are so familiar with the events that we've read about this morning, God, that you would just cause our minds to be refreshed and ready to hear, God, what a a marvelous thing that you've done, as we sang earlier, God, how wonderful, how marvelous. We, we pray that, that it would become so clear to us, Lord, that the, the beauty of your gospel this morning. And God, we pray that more than just hearing it with new ears, God, we pray that we would hear it with ears that are, are touched so by the Holy Spirit that, that our lives would literally be transformed, our minds renewed by the word, that we would just be altered, that our course, our our direction would be altered by hearing the word this morning, Lord. And God, as I always do, Lord God, I pray for myself, Lord. God, knowing full well what a weak vessel I am to carry these truths, Lord God, I ask that you would just enable me by the working of your great might to be able to effectively share this with the, the, the people that have gathered here today uh, and, and do it faithfully, God. Do it accurately. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good to see you here this morning. Glad you all made it. And um, I want to just um, uh, remind you we're in a series on the book of Mark and we're going to be going through it. We've asked you a few things that you would just, during the time that we're doing this, that you would spend some time reading in the book of Mark, and I hope you're doing that. Um, however you do it, whether you read it through uh, the book several times or read the sections that we are in, well, however you do it, we just hope that you're engaging with the book of Mark. Um, we also wanted to ask you to take time to really meditate on the things that we're talking about, to take time during your week and just uh, slow down. Uh, and just, I, I said this last week, but earlier is better. What I mean is, uh, if you wait till Thursday afternoon, you're probably not going to remember half I said. Um, I don't even remember what half I said on Thursday afternoon. So um, 
And then lastly, we want you to just settle in. We are intentionally going very slowly through this book so that it can have some time to marinate. And, um, and how many of you will acknowledge that sometimes you just need to, to let the, the, the word soak up in you? Is that right? Do you, do you acknowledge that? Well, in, when we look at this passage today, like I said in, in my prayer, these events in the life of Christ are probably familiar to most of us. Um, but let's take a look at this. Many churches in their uh, liturgies, they include this cry for mercy that is called the uh, Agnes Day, And Agnes Day is Latin for the Lamb of God. And it goes something like this. In, in their prayers, they say, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Grant us your peace. Grant us your peace. Now this prayer hundreds of years old, comes from John the Baptist pointing, as we talked about last week, to Christ in John chapter 1 and and saying to the people that are standing around him, look, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so that what happens is this story unfolds. Jesus comes to John at the Jordan River. We talked about John at the river uh, baptizing last week. So John's there baptizing. Jesus shows up at the Jordan to be baptized. Now, you may recall from the, from the stories of, of, the, uh, of the birth of Christ that John the Baptist and Jesus were not strangers. In fact, they were actually cousins. And Je- Jesus comes to be baptized. And, and what you need to recognize when Jesus shows up at the river, no one is saying, Look, it's Jesus! Wow, Jesus is here. No one's lining up their sick people to get healed. Nobody knew who he was. He had done absolutely no miracles at this point. He hadn't taught large crowds on the sides of mountains at this point. In fact, if you had met Jesus on uh, that day, you would have made the same assessment that everybody else at the river was making. This is a regular Joe, a blue-collar worker from Nazareth, a carpenter, and John, when John pointed to him, though, he was saying, you guys are getting it all wrong. This is someone significant. And Jesus, or Matthew rather, says that when Jesus came to be baptized, for all that John knew and understood, uh, mostly by revelation from the Holy Spirit, again, we talked about that last week, when, when Jesus comes and he says, I want you to baptize me, John, John is absolutely incredulous as any wise man would have been. He told, uh, you know, John had been telling people that Jesus is mightier than me. And he'd been telling them that he's not even worthy to remove Jesus's sandals. And John thought a better idea would be to have Jesus baptize him instead of him baptizing Jesus. Can you imagine getting such a request from someone as holy as Jesus? I need you to baptize me. He's like, Jesus, you've got this all wrong. You've got you've got the whole script flipped. And so John protested for this very reason. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it in these terms, but Jesus was not qualified to be baptized. Now, we read last week that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But God required in the Old Testament that sacrificial lambs have absolutely no blemishes whatsoever. And John knew that Jesus had no sin. So why on earth would he need to be baptized? 
And so when John says, hey, I need to be baptized by you, Jesus' response is telling. He says in Matthew 3.15, let it be so now. For thus it is filling for us to fulfill all righteousness. The sinless one standing right there in front of John insists that he baptize him like everyone else for this purpose to fulfill all righteousness. Now, everyone knows, if I asked you um, right now, if I just kind of took a poll and I said, uh, why did Jesus have to die? Everyone would say something to the effect of Jesus had to die for our sins or to offer us forgiveness for our sins. And of course, that is the right answer. But what I want to ask you this morning is, is that all? Is that all to the entire snapshot of Jesus and what he did for us? See, if all humanity required was the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross, then he could have absolutely skipped all that virgin birth stuff. He could have absolutely skipped his, his unknown years in, in Nazareth where he's uh, you know, growing up and being trained as a carpenter. He could have absolutely skipped uh, the, you know, that time he spent with those 12 knuckleheads called the disciples that, that were never quite getting it. could have skipped all that. He could have literally, if all that was required was the death of Christ, he could have literally descended from heaven straight to the cross, been nailed on the cross, risen three days later, ascended to heaven, and and our sin problem would have been solved. But that wasn't the whole picture. That wasn't all Jesus was doing. See, we didn't just need the death of Christ. We needed his vicarious life. He had to live a sinless life. He had to submit perfectly to everything that was required of humanity, including baptism. Hebrews 5.8 gives us a little, a little idea of what's, what I'm trying to say here. It says in Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, listen, Jesus did not learn obedience because he would have otherwise been disobedient. You and I have to learn obedience because given an option, we're almost always going to choose disobedience. Am I right? But that's not what it means when it says Jesus learned obedience. What Jesus was learning is he was learning to come and submit to everything that was required, every every facet of what it means to be truly and really human. Jesus... And what did that look in the end result? It looked like this. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law of God. He stood unwavering against every single temptation. He obeyed his Father's will, even when his Father's will took him to a bloody, agonizing death. But for what purpose did he do this? Well, Jesus came to do more than just forgive you. Now, let's do take a quick poll. How many of you, by the show of raised hands are glad that Jesus did come to forgive you. Raise your hand. How many of you are glad to have the burden of your sin rolled away? But if Jesus had only come to forgive us, all he would have accomplished is returning us to square one. He would have given us, handed us a clean slate, and you know what we always do with clean slates. What do we do? We fill them again with some trespasses and offenses. And so Jesus' idea, Jesus' plan, or should I rather say, the eternal plan of redemption formed by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was this. That he came to exchange our sinful disobedience with his perfect human obedience. On the cross, the, what the, how this worked is on the cross, God saw Jesus as guilty as we have ever been. 
and he saw us who believe in his name as righteous as Jesus himself is. And that's the beauty of Jesus' sinful life. Just as Adam, our represent, the representative of our race, disobeyed all by himself with his wife, and, and they plunged us into fallenness, so now Christ, the second Adam, as the Bible calls him, or the last Adam, re- represents all who will believe, and he imputes to us the perfect merit of, our, of his flawless obedience to God. So you have never been outside of anything the Holy Spirit's done in you. You've never been obedient, ever. And yet, by your faith in Christ, God now looks at you as obedient. And on the cross, he looked at, at Jesus bearing all of the sin of our disobedience. 1 Corinthians 5.21 sums this, what I'm trying to share with you very well. It says, for our sake, that means for you, this is a benefit for you. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, uh, so that was the reasoning behind Jesus' baptism. But there was also some things that God wanted to demonstrate for the watching crowd. When Jesus came out of the water, the Bible says that the heavens were ripped open above him. Now, John, uh, I think Mark uses the word torn, but that they were ripped open above him. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And the audible voice of God spoke his approval. Now let's slow down and examine all of this more closely. Uh, what I want to point out to you, and this is a beautiful connection, when you see the way that the Old Testament prepares us for the New Testament, how the New Testament is kind of hidden in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is kind of revealed in the New Testament. Well, we see this here. In Isaiah 64, the prophet Isaiah is mourning over Israel's sin, that they keep finding themselves in the middle of this, this sin, and, and he's, it, it, this sin has cast Israel into God's displeasure. And he's asking God, the prophet is asking God in this beautiful prayer to just visit them once again with his mercy. And and look at how he begins his desperate prayer. This is powerful to me. He says, oh, he's praying to God, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. God, our prayer is this is a mess we've gotten ourselves in. We will never dig ourselves out of this hole. And my prayer is, God, just tear heaven wide open and come down. Fix it. We can't fix it. What do we see at the Jordan? Heavens are ripped open. Guess what? Isaiah's prayer is being answered right there in front of all the people that had gathered at the river that day. Hundreds of years after he wrote those words, the heavens have been opened. And guess what? God himself came down to fix the mess. God himself came down to fix the mess that no one else could fix. Bringing abundant mercy with him. Now, the opening of heaven, that's a, that's a strange thing. And if you sit there in this message right now and try to imagine it, you, you will not successfully do that. The opening of heaven doesn't mean that there was a hole between our reality and the celestial one that you could kind of look up and see your dead loved ones up there in heaven. It's not what it means. It means that in Christ, something way more powerful, that, that because Christ was here and in him and by his power, heaven and earth were now merging 
It means that the the great and terrible day of the Lord had finally been inaugurated. It means that the new heavens and the new earth were beginning. The kingdom of God had arrived. Next, in order, the Holy Spirit is seen as descending on him like a dove. Now, what is happening here? This is Jesus' anointing for his service, for the ministry he would engage in for three years. Now, earlier we asked this question, if Christ was sinless, why on earth would he need to be baptized? Now we have to ask this question, if Christ is God and fully God, why would he need to be anointed by the Holy Spirit? Well, the answer is found in the two natures of Christ. Let me explain that. Our church affirms that Jesus Christ was 100% God, having the same substance same power, same as eternity as the Father and the Holy Spirit, without ever in any way dividing the essence of the Trinity. And John even goes on to say, in the introduction to his gospel, he says the Word, which is what he calls Jesus, the Word was God. But what I want you to understand, sometimes, and this, this happened a lot in the early days of the church, first couple of centuries of the church, people would either make an error by going too far into the divinity of Christ or too far into the humanity of Christ, either giving his humanity more significant than his deity or vice versa. And and what what the, the, the true orthodox doctrine of the church is, is that he is fully man and fully God. The the incarnation of Christ teaches us in all those scriptures affirming that Christ was also 100% man. This is the mystery of God made flesh because you say, I can see Daryl out there, he's going nuts because he always goes nuts on my math. 100% and 100% make 200%. 200% is a mathematical impossibility. Check my math. Is that right, Daryl? Absolutely right. But that's not the case with the Christ. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. And and as I said, this is the mystery. This is the mystery we have to wrestle with in our mind. But but what you always got to know is that no matter how mysterious it is to our limited minds, he is he has always been fully God. As, as long as God has been God, Jesus has been God. But since the incarnation, he has never, to this very day, been less than fully man. We, our church subscribes to the London Baptist Confession of Faith as our statement of faith. And they, they explain this mystery or try to explain this mystery in these words. It says, two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without converting one into the other or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ the only mediator between God and humanity. So Christ, very God of very God, didn't rely on his, on his divine nature to teach the words of God, to do miracles. As our representative, he did everything from his human nature by the power of the Spirit given to him at his anointing in his baptism. And what did this accomplish? This sub- submission to the Spirit. Well, this is Jesus one day went to the synagogue in, in Nazareth, his hometown, and he, they asked him to share a word with the, with the group. So he took the scroll of the book of Isaiah, turned to Isaiah 61. There were no chapters in those days, but he turned to 61 and he read these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me for what purpose? To proclaim good news, gospel to the poor. 
He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. The anointing and the presence of the Spirit of God empowered everything Christ did. And this applies very much to you and I. If we're believers in the Lord Jesus, you have been given the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we do not belong to Jesus Christ. Yet where is the power in us to live obediently like Jesus did? I think part of the issue with us is that the Bible commands us in Ephesians to continuously be filled with the Spirit. But it also tells us in other epistles that we can both quench and grieve the Spirit. So how does one become filled with the Spirit? How does one quench or grieve the Spirit? Well, we quench and grieve the Spirit by disobeying God's commands and by ignoring the means He's provided for us to know Christ better and be more intimately connected to Christ. Prayer and the Word and the sacraments and the worship and fellowship of the church. But we're filled with the Spirit when we, when we obey and seek through the means that He has provided to be conformed into the image of Christ. We don't need to be filled because somehow we get filled up and the Spirit kind of leaks out of us. That is not what happens. We need to be filled because you and I are easily polluted. Can anybody say amen to that? Just walking through this world kind of pollutes you up a little bit, doesn't it? Pollutes your thinking, sometimes pollutes your actions. But we need to be filled because we're so easily polluted. But listen to me, Christian. Listen to me, believer. If the sinless Christ needed the Spirit to accomplish His God-ordained task, how can you and I vainly imagine that we have no need of Him in our daily lives? How can we imagine that? Of course we do. Lastly, in, one, in the first of three separate occasions recorded by the gospel writers, the voice of God, the Father, speaks audibly from heaven. Again, we have to turn our attention to the Old Testament to discover the prophetic significance of this event. First is this. Remember uh, the, the words of the Father at, at the Jordan River were, This is my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Well, listen to what uh, Psalm 2-7 says. It says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. I, uh, today I have begotten you. Now, this is a messianic psalm. meaning it points to the Messiah coming. And in this psalm, the father affirms both the sonship relationship that he has with the Messiah and his intimate connection with God. He says, I, I have begotten you. Isaiah 42.1 similarly says, Behold my servant, another messianic prophecy, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nation. So here we have a prophecy of the coming Messiah again in which the father says that his soul delights in him and that he has put his spirit on him. We just saw that in the story of the baptism. Christ uh, after ha- have, having been endued with power by the Holy Spirit, here's the divine voice saying, This is my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And if you'll allow me to draw your attention to one more Old Testament passage, I think this is, this is the, the beautiful one. 
Beloved son reminds us that in Genesis 22, God said to Abraham, he said, take your son, your only son, your only begotten son, Isaac, whom you love, up to Mount Moriah to be sacrificed. And we know from the story that God was testing Abraham, but more importantly, that Abraham was prepared to obey. But in his mercy, God spared the boy, and he provided a ram to sacrifice for Abraham instead. But for God, listen carefully, there would be no intervention. His son would climb another hill, and at the top of that hill, his son would be sacrificed. Jesus would lay down his life. He would be the ram so that the sons of Abraham could live. Lastly, in this thing of the the baptism, there's no clearer evidence for the biblical doctrine of the Trinity than we have in this scene. R.C. Sproul says, God the Father sent Jesus into the world and into the water. The Father's Son, the second person of the Trinity, united to the humanity of Jesus, submitted to baptism. Then came the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who descended on Jesus at his baptism. Why is that important? Because you need to know the work of God, the salvation that you are enjoying, is initiated, accomplished, and applied by the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So after baptism, full of the Spirit... Christ does not do what you might think he would do if you were writing this story. He doesn't go immediately and preach or perform miracles, cast out demons, none of that. Instead, these are, if you, might, if you don't mind me putting it like this, these are the disturbing words that we read in Mark chapter 1, verse 12. Jesus comes up out of the water, and here's what we read. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know what the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to experience. He would be tempted by the devil there. The Spirit did not recommend or suggest he goes. He said, you know, a great idea. Before you head back to uh, Jerusalem, Jesus, here's what I would like to recommend we do. Mm-mm. There was a demise, a, a, an urgency, a, a, a divine imperative. Jesus was driven. He was compelled there. Now that is not to say that Jesus was forced. He just there was there was an intensity and urgency in him. The Greek word here for uh, for driven, like I said, this gets a little uh, you know kind of I don't know if disturbing is the right word, but but it, it depends on what what you've grown up thinking of who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is. But the Greek word for driven is a word ekbalo. And ekbalo uh, has a notion of violence or pressure in it. It's like there's some forcefulness behind ekbalo. So the, the Holy Spirit ekbaloed Jesus into the wilderness. It's the same word used for when Jesus himself would cast a demon out of someone. He would so forcefully drive the demon out of someone that he would ekbalo those demons out of, out of the person. Now, of course, you know this. Rest assured, this is not to imply that Jesus was in any way resistant to the Spirit's direction. Not at all. Rather, it was the exact opposite. 
Jesus' will was so submitted to the leading of the Spirit that he had to go. The driving was, was a cooperative driving. The Holy Spirit said, you must go. And, the whole, and Jesus never questioned it. He said, I must go. There was an intensity behind it. The holy urgency. My question is, I read this this week and I'm convicted. I, I say, do I obey God? Do you obey God with the same sense of intensity? Or when we're reading his word or, or have an impression in our praying, do we procrastinate when we hear his voice? Do we, worse, do we just simply disobey? Are we apathetic about what the word commands us? When we read the scriptures and we get clear direction for our lives, are we just apathetic about it? Man, my prayer for myself, and hopefully your prayer for yourself, definitely my prayer for all of us, is that we would be led by the Spirit of God in such a way that we would be driven to Christ, driven to obedience by our devotion. Again, Matthew and Luke, just like with the baptism, give us more detail about this chapter in Christ's life than Mark does. But Mark tells us three important facts. He was in the wilderness 40 days. He was tempted by Satan. And one that seems kind of odd and almost out of place, he was with the wild Animals. Let's take a look at each one of those uh, in order. We learn from the other Gospels that Jesus was completely alone in the Judean wilderness 40 days. And on top of that, if that wasn't enough, he was fasting. He had not eaten a single thing, but he spent the entire time in prayer and solitude. Next, we learn that he was tempted by the devil during that time. Mark and Luke, uh, or, I'm sorry, Matthew and Luke record three specific temptations. Um, but it's interesting, Mark's language. He says he was being tempted by the wild, in the wilderness by the devil for 40 days. And that language of being tempted indicates that the, that the temptation occurred over the entire 40-day period and not just three isolated incidences. So you need to understand that when Jesus, you read the story of Jesus being tempted by the devil, that he was in all-out war. The, the devil would not just, you know, shoot three bullets at Jesus when his goal was to get Jesus off track for his mission that was going to change the course of all, all time in history. It's war. And lastly, there's this important comment that Jesus was with the wild animals. And this is important because it frames for us important differences between Christ and those whom he represented. In the temptations, Christ is again laid before our eyes as the second Adam, or as the Bible also calls him, the last Adam. And also, not just the last Adam, but the perfect Israelite. And there's similarities and there's dissimilarities between the experiences of Christ and Adam as well as between Christ and the children of Israel. Let me give you some examples of that. Adam and Eve were tempted by the devil while living where? Well, in a lush garden and having been provided by God with every kind of food imaginable that they could, they could ever want. And they were satisfied. And, and Adam and Eve existed in a harmonious creation that was free from fear, free from danger. He and Eve had companionship with each other. So they also had intimate fellowship and also intimate fellowship with God. All of that 
defined the setting of Adam and Eve's temptation. Now let's take a look at Christ. Christ faced the tempter in a barren wilderness. He had nothing to eat. He was exposed to the wild animals, implying danger present. He was tested. Understand what's happening here. Adam was, was, was tempted and tested in a perfect world. Jesus was tested in desolation, a proof of a world that was smoldering under the curse of sin. He was completely alone. He was cut off from the comfort of any human interaction. Similarly, Adam and Eve and Jesus, their similarities, Adam and Eve and Jesus were both tempted with what their bodies craved. The Bible says that Eve saw that the, the fruit was good for food. And, and Jesus, at 40 days hungry, was being asked to make stones into bread. They were also tempted with what delighted their senses. Eve said that the fruit was a delight to the eyes. And the devil showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and all their wealth and said, this can all be yours. They were also tempted by what stoked their pride. Eve saw the fruit as something that could make one wise. And Jesus was told by the devil, hey, throw yourself down from the temple. There's a bunch of people in the temple right now, a bunch of people in Jerusalem. They'll all see it and you will have an immediate following. Your, your Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram numbers will go way up, Jesus, if you'll just toss yourself off the temple. And th- what I want you to see, though, is about that. Why would I break that down for you? Because, listen, these three temptations constitute, categorically, every single temptation you will ever face. There is no fourth kind of temptation. Everything that you do, if you'll think about it for a minute, you'll find this to be true, everything that you are consistently tempted by is found within one of these three categories. And John, the Apostle John, realized that. He wrote in 1 John 2.15, watch this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, he's going to break it down for us. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, man, that looks good, or that, that, that'll give me some kind of satisfaction in my soul. The desires of the eyes, man, that looks good. I would sure be important if I had that. I would sure feel satisfied if I had that. And the pride of life. And John says all of this is not from the Father, but is from the world. He goes on to tell us that the world and all of its desires are passing away, but the one who does the will of God will remain forever. So again, let's look at the children of Israel now. The children of Israel were tested in a wilderness with hunger and thirst, where they were led after their baptism in the Red Sea, as Christ was led to the wilderness after his baptism. And they wandered 40 years. Christ endured for 40 days. They were provided, uh, when they complained, they were provided manna from heaven, food literally dropped from heaven for, to feed them. But Christ, again, had nothing. The way that Adam and the Israelites and Christ were all similar was in the essence of their temptation. So they had these similarities and dissimilarities, but the way that they were all the same was in the essence of their temptation. Their souls, Adam and Eve, the Israelites, Christ, were all presented with this question. Are you going to believe and obey the word of God? To Adam and Eve, the word was what? If, if, you, uh, if, if you eat it, the day you eat it, you'll die. Are they going to believe that? See, the enemy, this is our daily question as well. 
No matter what temptation you are faced with, again, I don't care what it is, it can be one of a thousand things, but your temptation is always to, to fail to answer the question rightly, are you going to believe and obey the word of God? This is our daily question. The enemy always directs his attack on the truthfulness of, the truthfulness of what God has said. That's how he attacks us. Jesus went straight into the desert after his baptism. Think about this. And he just heard the voice of God say, You are my beloved son. Comes into the wilderness. What's the first thing that snake hisses? Well, if you're really the son of God. He always attacks directly what God has said. What was the first thing... Uh, the devil said, you know, uh, he said uh, to Eve, he said that the devil said to Eve, did God really say? See, the children of Israel saw God bring them out of slavery with a mighty hand, having devastated the wealth and power of Egypt. And though they were promised by the God who did all that, that they were going, he was bringing them to a land of milk and honey. They quickly complained to Moses saying things like, if only we died in Egypt. Well, there's some optimism for you. If only we died in Egypt when we ate bread till we were full, for you brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, all of us, with this hunger. Both our first parents and the children of Israel miserably failed to believe God's word and obey it. As every one of us in this room has done here today. But Jesus, oh, thank God, our representative, our second Adam, our last Adam, not only believed and obeyed the scriptures, they were his sword and shield against every assault and appeal of the enemy. Three times Jesus countered temptation with these words, it is written and proceeded to quote Deuteronomy to the devil. When the devil told him to satisfy his hunger by using his power to turn rocks to bread, Christ replied, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When tempted to cast himself from the pinnacle of the temple to prove a watching crowd that he was God, he responded, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When offered a a shortcut to glory by simply bowing before Satan, when no one was looking, Jesus countered this, Be gone, Satan. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And in this way, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fought the enemy on the same turf that Adam did, on the same field of battle that the children of Israel fought upon, and unlike them, who were defeated so conclusively, Jesus emerged victorious. By obedience and by submission to God, the man, Jesus Christ, our mediator, was preparing righteousness with which to close us. And so where our first father, Adam, failed, our, 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 the second Adam came and he, he was not only uh, the better Adam, he was the perfect Adam. Where Israel, given all the covenants and promises of God, failed miserably to the point where they were, their, their whole nation was devastated. Jesus arose as the son of David, the son of Abraham, the perfect Israelite, and did everything that Israel 
failed to do. The Bible was his weapon to get, win against the onslaught of the devil. And when the devil comes against you, as he will, with temptations, with thoughts, with, with urges, with whatever, however he does it in whatever category, what is your weapon? I'm embarrassed to tell you. I'm so embarrassed to tell you this, but oftentimes my weapon is grumbling and complaining. I tell God how unfair this is and, and, and why do I have to do this again, Lord? Sometimes I have a different weapon. Sometimes my weapon is a faithless, just limp prayer with, uh, that's uttered. It's more just, just uh, uh, fatalism than, than real trust in God. No confidence in what he said and sometimes no even knowledge of what he said because of my neglect of the word. What is your weapon? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that at the end of these temptations, that angels came and ministered to the Lord's need, physically and spiritually. And, and, and I'm, I'm encouraging you to take up the weapon of the word. And you can't do that if there's an inch of dust on your Bible. I've said this before, but Charles Spurgeon once said, there's so much dust on some of your Bibles that you could take your finger and write damnation on the cover of it. Open those Bibles. Hear what the Lord says. If you need help, get help. We'll help you. But just learn to read your Bible. Learn to fight with your Bible. Now, I don't mean online with other people who have different theologies. I mean, fight the devil. Take him out. So Jesus comes through this and the angels minister to him. And I want you to take comfort in this because though when you're in trial, it may seem like God is completely absent. Absolutely silent. He is nearer to you than you can ever imagine. He's nearer to you than you have ever known. And he's waiting, waiting at the finish line of what he's trying to accomplish in you to bring you uh, comfort and minister to you. He's waiting. But some of us never make it to the finish line. So I said last week that Mark was first read by Christians in Rome who were suffering severe persecution under Nero. And what comfort do you think they must have received from this letter? They might... Face lions. But that's okay. Because Jesus had been among the wild animals. Though Jesus endured hunger, he never abandoned faith. And he showed that in the simple trust that he expressed that God's way is better. My question to you in closing is, what are you facing right now that is tempting you to compromise or to give up? How could the story of Christ's victory, his victory for you as your representative, stir up faith and courage in you to take your stand against the devil? Word of God in hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now in these two stories of Jesus' preparation 
to do what you had called him to do and, and the mission that he had received from you, Lord. We, we, God, we just acknowledge that sometimes we're rushing into our place that we think we're supposed to be and we have, we have endured no preparation, God. God, we rush out full of what Fox News has said and no fullness of the Holy Spirit. We, we, we uh, put our, our fullness, God, in, the, uh, in the, uh, just the ideas of, of what's going on on social media, Lord, and we have no idea how to sit and, and be filled and purified by the Holy Spirit. God, we as a body of believers, we repent of that before you today and we ask you to press on our hearts, Lord God, so that we would adore you and love you and follow you. Lord, we admit that in times of temptation, there have been many times, too many to number, where we have not been clinging to your word, where we have, God, sought relief some kind of emotional relief relief by grumbling and complaining, by God just something trying to do something spiritual and throwing up absolutely faithless prayers, not believing what your word or not even knowing what your word has said. And Lord, we, we also repent of that. God, we pray that you would lay a heavy conviction on our hearts, that we would be so united with the word of God. God, that it would begin to affect our thinking and our acting, Lord, that we would we would have a, a source of conviction, Lord, to uh, look to you and, and God, just trust you to make us uh, what you've called us to be, to stand victorious along with Christ against the onslaughts of the enemy. God, you've given us everything we need. So, Lord, would you Come near to us and help us, Lord. God, we are so weak and so frail, but Lord, you are strong. And in our weakness, the Bible says, in our weakness, you are strong. And so we ask you to come in and invade our weakness so that we could be strong and and honoring of you, Lord God, and avoid your displeasure. Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand with me, we're going to come before the Lord's table and receive the elements today. Um, I just um, want to encourage you that, that as we, we do, that this is a time where we uh, that just uh, kind of uh, puts a spotlight on our union with Christ, where we are unified with Christ by feasting on him, the elements of the bread and the, and the cup that remind us that, that um, Jesus is literally, especially when you hear a message like this, Jesus is all we need all we need to satisfy every longing of our soul. And so I want to encourage you to just um, take a few moments. We're about to open the tables for you to come and receive the elements, take them back to your seat, and we'll take them together. But but why don't you just not rush down here this morning just to like get one more thing that we do every week at church over with? Why don't you just take a few seconds, um, you know, and just just ponder what you're doing right now and just ask ask the lord to make real what you're doing to to feast on christ and to be united to his his physical body and so let's let's do that right now when you're ready you can come paul writes to the corinthians for i received from the lord what i also passed on to you the lord jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it And he said, this is my body, 
which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's offer our thanks. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus, our great high priest that has reconciled us to the Father and made a way for us to be united in intimate communion with him and in intimate communion with each other. So, Lord, we pray that you would uh, bless us uh, by the taking of your sacraments, the hearing of your word, the worshiping together, the praying together, and God, conform us to the image of your dear Son in this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, place your hands in a receiving position, and I will read this benediction over you. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.